0: Chapter 8, Part 1 of Struggles and Triumphs, or Forty Years' Recollections of P.T. Barnum, written by himself. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Struggles and Triumphs of P.T. Barnum, Chapter 8, The American Museum, Part 1 my newspaper squib war against the peel combination was vigorously kept up when one morning about the first of december i received a letter from the secretary of that company now calling itself the new york museum company requesting me to meet the directors at the museum on the following monday morning i went and found the directors in session the venerable president of the board who was also the ex-president of a broken bank blandly proposed to hire me to manage the united museums and though i saw that he merely meant to buy my silence i professed to entertain the proposition and in reply to an inquiry as to what salary i should expect i specified the sum of three thousand dollars a year this was at once acceded to the salary to begin january first eighteen forty two and after complimenting me on my ability the president remarked of course mr barnum we shall have no more of your squibs through the newspapers to which i replied that i should ever try to serve the interests of my employers and i took my leave it was as clear to me as noonday that after buying my silence so as to appreciate their stock these directors meant to sell out to whom they could leaving me to look to future stockholders for my salary they thought no doubt that they had nicely entrapped me but i knew i had caught them for supposing me to be out of the way and having no other rival purchaser these directors postponed the advertisement of their stock to give people time to forget the attacks i had made on it and they also took their own time for paying the money promised to mr heath december twenty sixth indeed they did not even call on him at the appointed time but on the following morning as agreed I was promptly and hopefully at Mr. Olmsted's apartments with my legal adviser at half past nine o'clock. Mr. Heath came with his lawyer at ten, and before two o'clock that day, I was in formal possession of the American Museum. My first managerial act was to write and dispatch the following complimentary note. American Museum, New York, December 27, 1841. To the President and Directors of the New York Museum. Gentlemen, It gives me great pleasure to inform you that you are placed upon the free list of this establishment until further notice p t barnum proprietor it is unnecessary to say that the president of the new york museum was astounded and when he called upon mr heath and learned that i had bought and was really in possession of the american museum he was indignant he talked of prosecution and demanded the one thousand dollars paid on his agreement but he did not prosecute, and he justly forfeited his deposit money. And now that I was proprietor and manager of the American Museum, I had reached a new epoch in my career, which I felt was the beginning of better days, though the full significance of this important step I did not see. I was still in the show business, but in a settled, substantial phase of it that invited industry and enterprise, and called for ever-earnest and ever-heroic endeavor. Whether I should sink or swim depended wholly upon my own energy i must pay for the establishment within a stipulated time or forfeit it with whatever i had paid on account i meant to make it my own and brains hands and every effort were devoted to the interests of the museum the nucleus of this establishment scudders museum was formed in eighteen ten the year in which i was born it was begun in chatham street and was afterwards transferred to the old city hall and from small beginnings by purchases and to a considerable degree by presents it had grown to be a large and valuable collection people in all parts of the country had sent in relics and rare curiosities sea captains for years had brought and deposited strange things from foreign lands and besides all these gifts i have no doubt that the previous proprietor had actually expended as was stated fifty thousand dollars in making the collection no one could go through the halls as they were when they came under my proprietorship and see one-half there was worth seeing in a single day and then as i always justly boasted afterwards no one could visit my museum and go away without feeling that he had received the full worth of his money in looking over the immense collection the accumulation of so many years I saw that it was only necessary to properly present its merits to the public to make it the most attractive and popular place of resort and entertainment in the United States. Valuable as the collection was when I bought it, it was only the beginning of the American Museum as I made it. In my long proprietorship, I considerably more than doubled the permanent attractions and curiosities of the establishment. In 1842, I bought and added to my collection the entire contents of Peel's Museum. In 1850, I purchased the large Peel collection in Philadelphia, and year after year I bought genuine curiosities, regardless of cost, wherever I could find them, in Europe or America. At the very outset, I was determined to deserve success. My plan of economy included the intention to support my family in New York on $600 a year, and my treasure of a wife not only gladly assented, but was willing to reduce the sum to $400 if necessary. Some six months after I had bought the museum, Mr. Olmsted happened in at my ticket office at noon and found me eating a frugal dinner of cold corned beef and bread, which I had brought from home. Is this the way you eat your dinner? he asked i have not eaten a warm dinner except on sundays i replied since i bought the museum and i never intend to on a weekday till i am out of debt ah said he clapping me on the shoulder you are safe and will pay for the museum before the year is out and he was right for within twelve months i was in full possession of the property as my own and it was entirely paid for from the profits of the business in eighteen sixty five the space occupied for my museum purposes was more than double what it was in eighteen forty two the lecture room originally narrow ill-contrived and inconvenient was so enlarged and improved that it became one of the most commodious and beautiful amusement halls in the city of new york at first my attractions and inducements were merely the collection of curiosities by day and an evening entertainment consisting of such variety performances as were current in ordinary shows. Then Saturday afternoons, and soon afterwards Wednesday afternoons, were devoted to entertainments, and the popularity of the museum grew so rapidly that I presently found it expedient and profitable to open the great lecture room every afternoon, as well as every evening, on every weekday in the year. The first experiments in this direction more than justified my expectations— for the day exhibitions were always more thronged than those of the evening. Of course, I made the most of the holidays, advertising extensively and presenting extra inducements. Nor did attractions elsewhere seem to keep the crowd from coming to the museum. On great holidays, I gave as many as twelve performances to as many different audiences. By degrees, the character of the stage performances was changed. The transient attractions of the museum were constantly diversified and educated dogs industrious fleas automatons jugglers ventriloquists living statuary tableau gypsies albinos fat boys giants dwarfs rope dancers live yankees pantomime instrumental music singing and dancing in great variety dioramas panoramas models of niagara dublin paris and jerusalem Hannington's dioramas of the creation, the deluge, fairy grotto, storm at sea, the first Punch and Judy in this country, Italian fantoccini, mechanical figures, fancy glass blowing, knitting machines, and other triumphs in the mechanical arts, dissolving views, American Indians who enacted their warlike and religious ceremonies on the stage, these, among others, were all exceedingly successful i thoroughly understood the art of advertising not merely by means of printer's ink which i have always used freely and to which i confess myself so much indebted for my success but by turning every possible circumstance to my account it was my monomania to make the museum the town wonder and town talk i often seized upon an opportunity by instinct even before i had a very definite conception as to how it should be used and it seemed somehow to mature itself and serve my purpose. As an illustration, one morning a stout, hearty looking man came into my ticket office and begged some money. I asked him, why did he not work and earn his living? He replied that he could get nothing to do, and that he would be glad of any job at a dollar a day. I handed him a quarter of a dollar, told him to go and get his breakfast in return, and I would employ him at light labor at a dollar and a half a day. When he returned i gave him five common bricks now said i go and lay a brick on the sidewalk at the corner of broadway and ann street another close by the museum a third diagonally across the way at the corner of broadway and vesey street by the astor house put down the fourth on the sidewalk in front of st paul's church opposite then with the fifth brick in hand take up a rapid march from one point to the other making the circuit exchanging your brick at every point and say nothing to anyone what is the object of this inquired the man no matter i replied all you need to know is that it brings you fifteen cents wages per hour it is a bit of my fun and to assist me properly you must seem to be as deaf as a post wear a serious countenance answer no questions pay no attention to anyone but attend faithfully to the work and at the end of every hour by st paul's clock show this ticket at the museum door enter walking solemnly through every hall in the building pass out and resume your work with the remark that it was all one to him so long as he could earn his living the man placed his bricks and began his round half an hour afterwards at least five hundred people were watching his mysterious movements he had assumed a military step and bearing and looking sober as a judge he made no response whatever to the constant inquiries as to the object of his singular conduct at the end of the first hour the sidewalks in the vicinity were packed with people all anxious to solve the mystery the man as directed then went into the museum devoting fifteen minutes to a solemn survey of the halls and afterwards returning to his round this was repeated every hour till sundown and whenever the man went into the museum a dozen or more persons would buy tickets and follow him hoping to gratify their curiosity in regard to the purpose of his movements this was continued for several days the curious people who followed the man into the museum considerably more than paying his wages till finally the policeman to whom i had imparted my object complained that the obstruction of the sidewalk by crowds had become so serious that i must call in my brick man This trivial incident excited considerable talk and amusement. It advertised me, and it materially advanced my purpose of making a lively corner near the museum. I am tempted to relate some of the incidents and anecdotes which attended my career as owner and manager of the museum. The stories illustrating merely my introduction of novelties would more than fill this book, but I must make room for a few of them. An actor named LaRue, presented himself as an imitator of celebrated histrionic personages including Macready, forrest kemble the elder booth keane hamblin and others taking him into the green room for a private rehearsal and finding his imitations excellent i engaged him for three nights he gave great satisfaction but early in the fourth evening he staggered into the museum so drunk that he could hardly stand and in half an hour he must be on the stage calling an assistant we took Larue between us and marched him up broadway as far as chambers street and back to the lower end of the park hoping to sober him at this point we put his head under a pump and gave him a good ducking with visible beneficial effect then a walk around the park and another ducking when he assured me that he should be able to give his imitations to a charm you drunken brute said i If you fail and disappoint my audience, I will throw you out of the window. He declared that he was all right, and I led him behind the scenes where I waited with considerable trepidation to watch his movements on the stage. He began by saying, Ladies and gentlemen, I will now give you an imitation of Mr. Booth, the eminent tragedian. His tongue was thick, his language somewhat incoherent, and I had great misgivings as he proceeded but as no token of disapprobation came from the audience i began to hope he would go through with his parts without exciting suspicion of his condition but before he had half finished his representation of booth in the soliloquy in the opening act of richard the third the house discovered that he was very drunk and began to hiss this only seemed to stimulate him to make an effort to appear sober which as is usual in such cases only made matters worse and the hissing increased i lost all patience and going on the stage and taking the drunken fellow by the collar i apologized to the audience assuring them that he should not appear before them again i was about to march him off when he stepped to the front and said ladies and gentlemen mr booth often appeared on the stage in a state of inebriety and i was simply giving you a truthful representation of him on such occasions I beg to be permitted to proceed with my imitations. The audience at once supposed it was all right, and cried out, Go on, go on, which he did, and at every imitation of Booth, whether as Richard, Shylock, or Sir Giles' overreach, he received a hearty round of applause. I was quite delighted with his success, but when he came to imitate Forrest and Hamblin, necessarily representing them as drunk also, the audience could no longer be deluded, The hissing was almost deafening, and I was forced to lead the actor off. It was his last appearance on my stage. End of chapter 8, part 1.